Heavenly Father, we pray that your written word of truth may now and always be our guide. May your Holy Spirit guide us all. To your great and glory, I give praise to you, Father. In my Christ's name. When you watch drama series on the television, once you're past the first episode, each new installment begins with the word to remind regular viewers of the story up to that point and to help new viewers get the story. And I feel that that pattern is probably appropriate for us this morning because we've now reached the end of the story. And in special regards, Deacon Andy was not able to be with us last week to take us through chapter 3. And as we've seen so far in the the tale of absolute sad misery. The German poet Goethe calls it the loveliest complete work in its whole genre, handing down to us the ethical treasure of its history. In it, we see ordinary people facing very ordinary dilemmas. And we doubt it is they experience great hardship, and with a husband in Limelech went into another country, Moab, because there was famine back at home. And after he died, her three sons, Marlon and Kilian, married Moabite women. And it was Marlon who married Ruth. But tragically, both sons died, leaving Naomi bereft of her. And then she heard that there was food back in Israel. The famine was over. So Naomi decides to go back and urges her daughters-in-law to stay in Moab and make a life there for themselves. But Ruth, through her deep love for Naomi, is determined to stay there and utters these beautiful and memorable words. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So the two women return home, and it is at this point that Boaz enters the story. He is a near relative, a landowner, who because of Ruth's love for Naomi, allows her to glean in his field a very generous harem to ensure that their wealth survives the we can see straight away that Boaz is a man of honor, deeply committed in his desire to do the right thing in line with God's will for his people. And during this period, Boaz meets Ruth and forms a very favorable impression. So much so that it encourages Naomi to consider the possibility 
of the same. And in those days, it was the responsibility of parents to make arrangements for their children. And Naomi takes on this responsibility for her children. Boaz is her kinsman, relating to Naomi through Elimelech and to Ruth through Martha. Naomi sees her opportunity, and she seizes the moment, as we see in chapter 3. Naomi takes the initiative. Obviously, the Queen of Asia saw the opportunity. And she knows that that evening, Boaz will be at the threshing floor to protect his harvest. But Ruth is the boss and anointed one as a bride prepares for her husband. Naomi is preparing Ruth to make clear to Boaz that she wants him to marry her. So after Boaz and his men came down to greet her, Ruth comes to him and displays the humility of such a woman. Time passed and suddenly something startled Boaz. And he woke up. What's this? A woman lying at his feet. What on earth's going on? Who are you? What do you want? Characteristic humility of the woman, Ruth makes herself known. I am your servant Ruth. Then she asks her crucial question. Will you spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman of mine? This in the language of the time was a delicate attempt to marry. And requests God's love to Jerusalem as found in Ezekiel. I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I bathed you in water and washed the blood from you and poured ointment on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. So we can see that in putting herself in this position, Ruth was making herself very vulnerable. Yet she does this out of loyalty and love for Boaz and a conviction that Boaz has said to her earlier, that she would be richly rewarded by the God of Israel and that he would give her a path of success. It is because she now belongs to the covenant people of Yahweh that she's seeking a protection from the provision of Boaz. And he recognized that she was honoring a family obligation and felt honored to be asked. And he desired all he could do to help her. However, the situation was not straightforward, as there was another kinsman who was a closer relative to Boaz. He had first refused to help. But Boaz is also a man of action and won't rest until the matter is resolved. So as we reach chapter 4, all this is to make sense, we need to consider the role of the kinsman or guardian position within the culture of the time. And the Hebrew word here is yerek, I think that's how you pronounce it, but that's how it's written, and underlines the strong sense of family solidarity among the people of Yahweh. The members of a family 
had a duty to care and protect his flock and is linked to their special station in the Dead Sea. Clearly set out in the law in Leviticus, if one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative will come and receive what his countrymen have sold. So here we see that the God is the responsible restitutioner who acts to prevent property being lost or stolen. So the Shoah also acts to free a member who, because of financial hardship, has been forced to sell themselves or to escape. And the Shoah Institute illustrates the emphasis of the Old Testament on the people of God in the community and on the solidarity of the priestly duty. And this is rooted in the special covenant relationship between God and his people. And in a way that the whole of life is related to God through the covenant. Having viewed this, the use of Shoah in reference to human beings carries with it a sense of a payment for their service. It was costly and involved personal sacrifice was the priest that bear the blood. And this theme of redemption lies at the heart of the story. Paul, in particular, in the New Testament, focuses much of his thinking about Jesus, the Redeemer, in the same way as the author of Ruth does about Naomi. For in the absence of Boaz and Joram, we see foreshadowed the saving work of as Boaz had the right of redemption and yet clearly was under no obligation to intervene on Ruth's behalf, so it was with Jesus. Christ, our Joash, like Boaz and Ruth, is related to us, able and willing to redeem us. And we can rejoice in God's good provision for us, in his family, for the new creation, Jesus, by his redeeming love, is making possible for us. So as we have seen, Boaz was willing, but he wasn't in a pole position to act. Another had that right. So the action moved swiftly on to the town gate, which was the town hall of ancient Israel, where all the business was carried on rituals were freely available. And it was there that Boaz meets the other priestly family. And there the story reaches its joyful climax. Not before has the organ drama interrupted the cliffhanger moment. You can imagine the sense of tension as Boaz greets the other priests and redeemers. Which way is he going to go? As he introduces the subject before the ten elders who have acted wickedly, Boaz plays his trump card. Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the fleece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. It is possible that Naomi has told him about the land after Ruth's nighttime meeting, and this plan of action is to her benefit. 
But Boaz now goes on to say, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these people and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will do it, redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I need not ask. For no one has the right to do it except me. both to buy the land and take on responsibility for the risk. Realizing that Naomi was past childbearing, she assumed that the land would pass between her and Boaz, so he agreed to take it. But, says Boaz, it is not Naomi, but Ruth, raising a child who is 16 and a minute. Here, Boaz is deeply personal care and love for Ruth's giant daughter. In order that he might marry her, mentioning the land first, and then her as a joint responsibility, he could have required a sacrifice by the nearest kinsman, which is not Boaz was, in an act of unconditional love, he announced to the elders that he bought from Naomi all the property belonging to her late husband and sons, and in the process taken Ruth as a wife. This was approved by the elders who gave their blessing, and the transaction was completed and officially formalized by an exchange of accounts the life are legally binding anyway. And through the sacrificial love of Boaz, Ruth now belonged with the people of God. Boaz had expressed in practice what he believed to be true of God's actions toward his people. Those who are redeemed are the channel through which others of joy is complete with the birth of a son to Ruth, who becomes the heir in place of her mother. But in the purposes of God, this son is much more than that, and brings us to the theme that has underpinned the whole series, the providence of God. For the author leaves us with an epilogue, a genealogy linking Ruth and Boaz to David. This shows that just as Naomi was brought from emptiness to fullness through the selfless love of Ruth and Boaz, so the Lord brought Israel from unrest to rest through their descendant David, who selflessly gave himself to fight Israel's battle on the Lord's behalf. 
And as we see at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, the ultimate end of this genealogy is Jesus, the great son of David. For from the beginning of time, God has been working his purposes, both in his creation and in the lives of individuals. This is expressed so powerfully in the words of the Westminster Confession. God, the great creator of all things, that upholds, directs, dispose and govern all creatures, actions and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his will, to the praise and the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And this providence acknowledges both God's sovereign lordship in his service and our freedom to live responsibly within his kingdom. All his interactions with the world, whether global or personal, are in line with his overall purposes for creation. That is to share his life of love and glory with another reality over which he is creator. God is there. He cares. He rules. He governs. And it is this faith in the providence of God that shines through the story of Nehemiah. And that even our accidents are within his plan. As we read back through the story, we see this working out. How Ruth just happened to glean into Boaz's story, as we saw two weeks ago in chapter 2. What to Ruth would have been a sheer coincidence in an unplanned set of circumstances, we understand now as part of the outworking of God's gracious plan as he honors her faith. And I'm sure many here would echo that experience in their own lives. At the end of his long life, William Crews, the founder of the Salvation Army, was asked how he had been able to achieve so much. In reply, he said, for 80 years, God has had all there is of William Crews. Because of that, like Ruth and Boaz, God was able to work his purposes out. What shines through is their willingness to put God first in all things, to surrender all to him, to allow him to be the sovereign in their lives. And it's a question I've been asking myself as I've meditated on this sublime story under which I reflect. Am I willing to let God have his way and have first place in every aspect of my life as Boaz did? And are we as a church community ready to follow his example as we seek God's direction for ourselves? So as we reflect together on what God is saying to us through his word, Father in heaven, creator and sustainer of your world, we 